My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. cover of Van Halen. That's right, a solo guitar version of Jump. This is Transmissions, and Alan is joining us today for a discussion of his new book, Common Tones, selected interviews with artists and musicians, 1995 to 2020. Features some really incredible talks with people like Anoni, Greg Tate, Tony Conrad, Kelly Reichart, Yola Tango, and Lou Reed in an interview he seems to be enjoying. Kind of seems like Alan never rests. In addition to this fantastic book, he's part of the new Threshing Floor album, which pairs him with members of Wolf Eyes, Rebecca Odes, and Gresham Gonzalez. It's produced by L Studio 444 and Transmissions guest Warren DeFever. He's an artist, writer, and curator, and we touch on all of that in this revelatory talk. I love speaking with someone who blurs the divisions between things the way Alan does. Though I was very nervous, I often get that way around people I know are much, much smarter than me, which happens often enough on this podcast. He was disarming and conversational, and this talk went places I wasn't expecting. So I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, you can help us out by sharing it. If you want to take your support a step further, you can find Aquarium Drunkard over on Patreon. All right, here we are, Alan Licht, Transmissions. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions, Alan. Uh, uh, what's what's new? What's what's happening? How is your your Monday so far? <laughs> uh, well, Bandcamp Friday was Friday, and uh, you know I have this. Uh, we call ourselves a talk rock trio called Title TK with uh, Corey Archangel, who's uh, kind of a media artist, and Howie Chen, who's a curator and does a lot of other things in the art world. Uh, and you know we've we've traditionally we've gone on stage and just talked about music or celebrity gossip or whatever <laughs> it is we're talking about. Uh, and up until now, we haven't released any audio recordings of these concerts. We've just done tra- transcripts, and uh, the publisher Primary Information released a book of uh, a collection of the transcripts. Uh, and then uh, a, f- a few months ago, we released a very limited edition cassette of the last performance we did sort of like before lockdown and everything like that, which was still quite a while before that. But it was at a, a the Lausanne Underground Film Festival in Switzerland. And we went on quite late at night. And so the people who were still there were either drunk or insomniacs or <laughs> Yeah, whatever. yeah. So it was a pretty wild um 
show and it's called metallic tk because it's sort of like the stooges metallic ko where you hear people like throwing bottles at them and all this kind of stuff which they were actually doing with us too where they were really getting pretty hairy so we had a good recording of it and we put it out as a limited edition cassette and we've sold a bunch of them and we were kind of we're kind of down to the last copy so friday i cut just kind of made an announcement like you know it's like now or never like uh now's your last chance so a bunch of people bought them and so this morning i uh so i sort of uh you know i kind of uh boxed them up over the weekend and then mailed them out this morning nice yeah well congratulations on the release of of common tones on the on the uh on the topic of cassettes you posted recently on twitter a bunch of cassettes of the interviews featured in this book Mm -hmm. right Right. Would you would you ever consider putting the audio of, of these talks out, or do you kind of prefer it in, in the book form, or, or maybe both? I would, but it would take a little bit of doing because, A, the stuff is still edited, so you would have to edit the audio recordings, and then, B, because of the, the variations in tape speed, some of them are, like, really need to be kind of, like, speed-corrected yeah. uh, and digitized. I, most of them I've never really digitized. Um you know, in hindsight, it was a little bit of a mistake for me not to have gone t- digital and doing these recordings <laughs> sooner than I have. I mean, now it's really easy for me to just do a voice memo on my phone. Right. Um, you know, part of what made that uh, slightly preferable was like you could buy these handheld cassette recorders that also when you were transcribing was easy to just like rewind just for like 10 or 15 seconds. Right. Which you couldn't really do on if you had um a digital recorder and then transferred it to itunes or whatever it was a lot harder to do that and now of course it's totally easy to do it yeah uh, with apps and stuff like that so and it sounds much better too so it's really it's like a kind of a vast improvement yeah but, um yeah uh, but yeah but you know but for better or worse yeah i mean i was still recording stuff on cassette uh even even a few years ago yeah yeah i mean i've i've tried all sorts of forms too from i mean this is obviously recording uh so when we do it for the podcast it's it's easy but over the many years i've had like tape recorders i've had little digital recorders i've used my phone a ton um it can be nice especially when like you said you're transcribing and you just need to go back a little bit um I've even tried transcribing on lower speeds, though, you know, like half speed or whatever. And I'm like, well, maybe mm-hmm. I could get it. And it just ended up sounding too weird to me. So I had to just like quit trying to do that. But it's a. Uh, yeah, know. I mean, if you're trying to figure out um, like music, actually, like if you're trying to figure out someone's guitar solo or something, and you play it at half speed and it's something that's really, you know, fast, like a flurry of notes. Then it can be good. But I think for for spoken word, it's it's not so good. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't clarify anything if it's it's a word that's getting swallowed or something it just yeah makes yeah like you said it just makes it sound worse actually for sure for sure well well one of the things that i found really i mean i I really enjoyed reading through these interviews and the first one is with greg tate who is uh i mean a fantastic writer i'm i'm curious what first drew you to to his writing uh, well, I discovered it kind of simultaneously in the Village Voice and at and in uh, Downbeat because you know he he did this fantastic. It was like a two part article about uh, the Electric Miles stuff, like Miles' seventies uh, albums, which at the time were sort of critically neglected. You know, people I think people sort of hailed Bitches Brew and maybe uh, in uh, 
in a silent way as his kind of breakthroughs. And then the rest of the stuff in the 70s, I think critics sort of lost patience with it. But he was the, one of the first people to really go back and kind of explain like how groundbreaking these records were and how influential they were on uh, on people like, you know, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, where, you know, you know, most critics were not really making that connection. I think Lester Bangs did because because um, he was someone else who was a, a fan of those records. And then he became friends with Robert Quine, who was a guitarist in the Voidoids. And so he had that kind of personal connection where he, he kind of knew for a fact that that was uh, an influence there. Yeah. But, you know, Greg kind of, you know, kind of, it kind of uh, went even deeper on that. And Greg was writing about stuff like King Sunny a Day and um, Africa Bambada. And he did a great piece on uh, Cecil Taylor in The Voice. Um, he was just writing about really interesting stuff. And, and just as a writer, you know, his, his use of language, I thought was fantastic. It really, it really stood out to me back then. He's he, one of the things that's really interesting about, about him and, and yourself is that, and as you two discuss, you're both people who write about art, but also create art and make things yourselves. Um, before, I mean, I think I think you you cite Godard and you say whether whether I write he said whether I write an essay or make a film it's all the same. Um, okay. When you reflect back on you know conversations with people like Greg Tate and and obviously the fact that this is twenty five years worth of interviews and you've been playing music that entire time as well, I'm, I, I wonder if you find yourself thinking of the two forms criticism and 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 you know creative practice as being more connected or less connected these days how does it how does it work for you i think the the older i get the the better i'm able to analyze what the overlap is um you know certainly people at least in this country tend to sort of like look askance if you're like trying to be a quote-unquote critic and uh, a practitioner a musician i mean i've always sort of maintained that i'm more of a historian than a critic per se. I mean, you know, I, I've tried not to do record reviews and things like that. Um, and if you look at all the people in the book, they all have kind of a history to them. I'm not out there like, mm -hmm. you know, after, you know, with on um, interviewing the strokes after their first record or something like, so what's the story guys like, for you know, sure. like you band, you know, whatever it is. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I've, Definitely in terms of like doing improvisational music, or like especially the, the stuff I've done with Lauren Connors, that really has a conversational element to it where it's kind of like this, every concert is in itself a conversation. And then there's this sort of like longer ongoing musical dialogue between us that's really evolved in the same way that um, a conversation or a dialogue you would have with any personal um, acquaintance would be. Right. And then, uh, you know, just in terms of um, I've always thought that kind of finding the right word or the right phrasing for something in an article or an essay is really a lot like finding the right uh, part to play in a piece of music. Like if it's someone else's song, like coming up with the part to play for that person's song right. is a lot like finding the right word to describe their practice or something if you were doing a profile of them. And the other thing about, you know, these interviews, you know, just kind of, and you were talking about like the recordings of the interviews and just the whole idea of 
recording a conversation with somebody is it really it's you know like 20 years ago i did this piece called a new york minute right i don't know do you know that i don't piece know, or that? i don't know that yeah piece. It was like there was a double cd on xi records which is phil niblock's record label it's on the people it's interviewed in the book and this piece i did was where i recorded the weather forecast off 1010 winds news radio every day for a month and i edited it together so that you would have that day's forecast and then what they said about the next day and then i would cut it off there and go to the next day so you could see <laughs> how accurate the forecast was yeah. or wasn't about each day right and so the whole idea of recording <laughs> and then it's, I, it's like that's the first half of the piece and then the second half is actually recorded in a subway station which is not that far from where phil lives in uh, chinatown and it was a very busy subway station so you know um if people know the subway stations in new york city now you, you used to have tokens but now you have these metro cards and every time you swipe it it has like a a beep it's like bing. and so it was a busy one so it was almost this continuous drone of like you know sort of like they're yeah. all kind of over uh so those are two recordings of things that otherwise don't get recorded you know nobody goes in the subway stations it's like oh i wish i had like recording this so I could listen back to it later you know <laughs> right and, right and also just even, just even talking with um and also the um the forecast like nobody tapes a weather report uh so they can listen back to it later even later that day or let alone like 20 years later you know <laughs> sure like, sure so but that but that's to me is interesting it's like what happens when you record these things that aren't really meant to be recorded and I think the whole interviewing process in a way is is like that it's like you're recording a conversation um ordinarily you don't record your conversations with your friends unless you're andy warhol <laughs> right 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 but uh so that that to me is what's part of what's interesting about it and and you know in doing the book of with will oldham you know the, the mm -hmm. uh will oldham on bonnie prince billy which was like a a full length you know kind of series of interviews i did over a week uh with him um that really part of what made that uh, such an attractive prospect to me was like, he was already a friend of mine. I, I knew Will even before he did music because uh, he was friends with lots of musicians and he was a fan of my band then Love Child and so on yeah. and so forth. And so it was like, and I'd always had these amazing conversations with him, but of course it doesn't get recorded. It doesn't get documented. Um, but, but then I thought like, wow, this is a, like a great opportunity to like actually, and I know other people had amazing conversations with Will too, that aren't like formal interviews, cause which was something he was actually sort of averse to. But I thought like, this is a great way to kind of like document, like what a great conversationalist this guy is, you know, and in addition, you know, I would never really talk to him very much about his career or about you know his music because I, I already had this like just this other kind of relationship to him i wasn't like a fan or something like that i wasn't um and we would you know obviously sometimes we would kind of compare notes on music business stuff but i wasn't going to ask him about you know like so how did you record your latest record yeah. or you know how, you know, how, like how dark was the darkness in i see a darkness or whatever yeah <laughs> totally totally right 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 well, that's, I mean, that, that's fascinating, though. You know, you talk about that, you know, recording weather forecasts from 20 years ago 
things like that. I, 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 getting ready for this, I listened to Today I Am a Fountain Pen, the sound installation you did, <laughs> uh, made from loops from your, your bar mitzvah, right? Right. I mean, I think about that, I think about sound as like biography in an interesting way and, and how, um, I wonder if while you while this book was being assembled, I mean, did you find yourself going back and listening to any of these conversations, or were you mostly working with the printed versions that had already been, you know, already existed? I actually had to go back and listen to all of them because mm. in many cases I never transcribed the whole conversation. Sure. In some cases, I would just transcribe what the person had said, like the answers. I didn't transcribe my own questions because I was writing a profile and of course, you know, were sort of irrelevant. It wasn't going to be a Q, printed as a Q and a interview. And, um, you know, I just didn't bother. So yeah, I did. I definitely went back, uh, and listened to everything, um, to go back to the today I'm found pen. I felt like that was a little bit more about how this, you know, like, for people who don't know, like when you when you do your bar mitzvah, you're reading what's called a haftorah, which is kind of a supplement to the Torah, that week's Torah reading. Mm -hmm. And the haftorah, the way you you chant it, there's like this very fixed set of um, very short melodic phrases, and every word in it has a sort of symbol on top of it, and the symbol corresponds to the set of melodic phrases. And then, you know, in hindsight, after becoming like a fan of minimalism, like Steve Reich and Steve Philip Glass and so on and so forth, I, I realized this is like exactly like that kind of approach to composing, where it's like this very fixed set of melodic things. And then they sort of like combine and recombine in different ways. And, and you know, Brian Eno does that a lot too and terry riley did it with uh, some of his tape work which in turn influenced steve rice's tape work so it was it was about that and then of course it was sort of funny that i actually had this <laughs> recording of it although i think i think stuff like that you i mean that you then you do tend to document something like a bar mitzvah you know we, you know we hired a photographer and there was a photographer sure sure already so on and so forth and it probably wasn't that uncommon to record um someone's bar mitzvah you know i mean most people probably don't keep the tape <laughs> yeah but uh we did you know for whatever reason we did yeah yeah well i just i yeah i think that I, I i wonder if as you're listening back to conversations some of them from quite a long time ago if you're just struck by noticing changes in maybe your own mannerisms or the tone of your voice or things like that. I mean, is there a, a, a sort of personal biography part of things as you're putting a book like this together that sort of reveals itself or anything along those lines? One of the things that was fun about it was having to, to go back and write the introductions to them. I would have to remember like what the circumstances were of doing the interview to begin with. Right. And, and then kind of remembering like all these kind of interconnections. And that's part of what the, the name common tones sort of refers to is like how, you know, how interconnected these people are, whether they realize it or not, and how interconnected I am with them um, kind of even before and after the interview, you know, just in terms of my own kind of personal history. And sometimes just, you know, we kind of like, had a social relationship before and after, or sometimes 
before uh, and sometimes just after. Sure. Um, so that was um, that was that part of it in terms of the personal biography, for sure. You know, like in the interview with um, Ira in Georgia, there's one story I tell in there about this fan kind of slowing down and in uh, like I'm walking on the street in Hoboken and this fan kind of slows down and someone like like rolls down the window and just yells at me punk and then like speeds off after that and that's a story i did not remember at all until <laughs> i and listened to this transcript and now i like vaguely remember it. i think it must have happened pretty early on after i moved there in 1990 or 91 but uh uh that yeah i mean that story if i hadn't uh, <laughs> mentioned that story in talking to them I never would have remembered it sure yeah. that was such a cool one because obviously you're talking your 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 bands like Love Child and, and then Run On sort of were in similar circles with Yola Tango you've mentioned the social factor a few times mm-hmm. when you're when you're interviewing people who you've known for a long time or whose work you've followed for a long time or even interacted with I mean is there a sense of like you know, when you have long history with someone, does that play in sort of consciously to the kinds of questions you want to ask in terms of maybe verifying your own memories or trying to expand your sense of what a place was like or what the other people in the room might have been feeling? Is that is that consciously in your head or do you how do you prepare for an interview with someone that you've known for a long time, you know? Yeah, you know, in general I try to avoid <laughs> kind of interviews. The thing with Iron Georgia was great because the the guys who commissioned it were doing this whole uh it was a special issue of this French fashion magazine actually called Purple. And the whole concept of the issue was New Jersey. And though so they basically said we want would you want to do a conversation with Iron Georgia about Hoboken specifically? Yeah. And that was great because it was, it wasn't like, I mean, it becomes awkward if you're trying to talk to them about their new album, you know, kind of like I was saying before, talking about their new album when it's something that sure, you know, you're sort of, uh, you know, it's just not something you would really do, or it's, it seems weird to sort of do it for a magazine. If, you know, if I want, if I really want to ask them something about what studio they recorded them, I would just, you know it's like so uh and it's yeah i mean again going back again to to sort of how uh the kind of like dual profession is perceived people sort of look do look askance if it's like you're trying to sort of like play both sides of the fence so if it's something like that it's it's great if it can be something that's kind of off topic in a way or in terms of like so we're not like talking shop in print, we're talking about this other thing again that we have in common. You know, right. it's like that commonality that we have. We both lived in Hoboken for a long time. They still live. They lived there. They were there before me, and they were there after me. I think it was. Um, I think it was probably another ten years before they moved uh, out of Hoboken when Maxwell's closed. Right after that, it was. Yeah, yeah. I it's. There's, I mean, there's so many interesting things about that idea of of playing both sides of the fence or whatever. Uh, was there, do you, was there ever a specific moment where you th- said to yourself, "I'm not going to pick one of these things to do exclusively. I'm just going to do both." Or has it ever been that conscious for you? Um, I mean, there were people that I knew of who could kind of do that 
relatively successfully and relatively credibly. Mm-hmm. You know, Lenny Kay, I think, is a great example of that. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have, you know, he really was, he was a great rock writer and still is. Um, and then, you know, with the Patti Smith group, you know, it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty unassailable what he's done with Patti. Um, and it's something where he kind of goes back and forth a little bit, you know, when it's, you know, when Patti was on a roll, he wasn't writing for magazines. And then when the Patti Smith group broke up, then you know, he would start, he would go back to writing a little bit. And then, you know, and so it was just like kind of this back and forth thing. So that to me was like a great model of, of how to do it. Um, and, and likewise, you know, when, when love child and um, was really active, I didn't do really any writing. And, and that's, probably somewhat true of run on too. Um, and, you know, then more in the, you know, when I was doing all that stuff for the wire, it was more the two thousands where I was, you know, doing improv stuff at, um, tonic. And, you know, again, it was like, you know, it was like a little hairy because I was working at tonic, you know, doing sure. most of the playing, and then I was playing there. And then I was also writing, for the wire. And I was, again, like a little bit careful not to do profiles of people who would be someone I was also booking <laughs> at time. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I did want, it's not in the book, but I did, you know, I did a cover story on Michael Shira from the Swans and Michael actually would play a ton of quite a bit. And some of the bands on his label would play there. And he was actually kind of a great friend at, of tonics. And it was like kind of, someone we really liked hosting and, and, you know, he had, we had a good rapport with him. Uh, and I really, I had to go to, before I did it, I kind of like bounced it off Melissa Caruso Scott, who was one of the owners of Tonic and said like, where wants me to do the story, but if it's going to be weird, <laughs> you think it's going to be weird somehow for sure. Uh, you know, I can just say no. And, and she was like, no, I think it'll, you know, I think it'd be okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, as somebody who, you know, when you're talking with people who you do know well, I mean, that gives you that gives you a certain kind of leg up in terms of the kind of conversation you can have for obvious reasons, because you don't have to necessarily uh, get all of the introductory stuff figured out. You sort of have that figured out, and I think you can go really interesting places, but at the same time, it's it's obvious that if it's too inside baseball or whatever, you're not going to be inviting the reader in or whatever. But I don't feel like that's the way these conversations work at all. I feel like there's so much back and forth, and I think interest like your deep knowledge of this stuff. Like in an interview, okay, so let's say the Lou Reed interview, uh, where Lou is like deeply into the conversation you're having. Not many writers, you know, get that. I know you didn't know Lou Reed personally, but. Uh, what kind of interactions had you had? Had you seen Lou a bunch before that that conversation? I mean, obviously you followed the work, but what kind of back and forths had you experienced yeah. with him? I mean, to go back to the first thing you were talking about um, in terms of uh, like kind of knowing someone, I think the interviews that were in Bomb Magazine, which was Tony Ausler, Reese Chatham, uh, I mean, Alessandra Navago, though I, I didn't know her before doing that interview. But both Reese and um, actually Tony, I kind of really didn't. Those those are things where the 
the point is the whole point of bomb magazine is to get people who already know each other to do an interview and that kind of habit be, and, you know, with, with, you know, varying. So it's not like a regular interview where it's just like a journalist talking to a, uh, artist. It's like kind of two artists kind of having a conversation. Um, so, and, and that I always thought was really cool. So I, I've really enjoyed doing the interviews for bomb kind of for, for that reason. I should also say that a lot of, you know, a lot of people who write for the wire are themselves musicians. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty unique in that way for, for a publication. And I think that's sort of what, uh, uh, makes it, um, kind of like a, a cut above the rest in terms of, um, some of the stuff that they've, they've published. And, um, you know, the, one of the things I loved about the wire was before, even before I started writing for it was, you know, they would put Iggy pop on the cover, uh, for, you know, whatever record he had out at the time. And they would spend like one paragraph on the record and then the rest <laughs> him telling stories stories about the stooges which is what you know the writer which I th- i'm pretty sure the writer was edwin pouncey who was also savage pencil the, the illustrator right uh, that's for sure what Ed- edwin pouncey was interested in and it's what i think most of their readers would be interested in so that's it's you know it's it's a it's a great magazine just part of for that reason but to go back to lou um yeah you know i was uh you know especially in high school i was a huge fan of the Velvet Underground, um, you know, I, and his solo career, I sort of like followed, but, uh, with varying degrees of interest. Sure. Sure. Um, but it was great timing because this, the record he had out then was the Raven, which was a double CD and was kind of all over the place. It was really kind of a labor of love. It wasn't him trying to have another hit single. It wasn't him, uh, trying to get on the radio. It was like him doing this long form thing that's inspired by the stories of Edgar Allan Poe and he's got Ernest Coleman playing on it. He's got Anony uh, singing on it. So all these kind of like guest things that, and it's, it's really kind of a collaboration between him and how Wilner and Wilner's input is kind of, is all over it. You know, you can see his fingerprints on it, just in kind of these weird combinations of people like uh, the McGarrigal sisters and also, uh, you know, um, I don't know who, who else is even more obscure, but, you know, someone like Doug Weaselman, you know, who is, who is a great, uh, like clarinetist who is more in the kind of like the tonic scene and everything. Um, so it was, it was great. But if you go back and look at the interviews he did at that time, he's saying the exact same things about the Raven as he told me. So to a certain extent, he's got, you know, the, the script, you know, in mind. Sure. Uh, and I was the way I was able to um, get him to deviate from that again was like mentioning, you know, metal machine music in quad, <laughs> right? The quad version of that, or melody laughter, which is like this very obscure Velvet Underground uh, track that was really only on a bootleg for a long time. Um, so then he's just like, "Whoa, wait, how, you know, how do you know about all this stuff?" Yeah. And the other thing about um, that article was. And even though he's, you know, he can see he's very complimentary to me afterwards, which was, you know, of course, it's like extremely flattering. But what happened was that issue came out. And of course, it was a cover story and I'd written a whole article about it. And I leaned pretty heavily on that interview. But it wasn't a Q&A interview. Right. What happened was that there was a guy I was friendly with through Tonic because he played there. and But he also knew my music and his name was Schooley Sverison. And Schooley was Laurie Anderson's musical director. And um, 
And so he knew Lou through Lori. And uh, when that article came out, he was having a coffee with Lou out somewhere. And he was like, you know, I just read the best article I've ever read about you. And it was this friend of mine who wrote it for The Wire. And Lou was just like, he didn't have any memory of it. <laughs> he did it in a press day. And it's like, of course, every, you know, he did like 20 interviews that day, sure. 20 different magazines. He doesn't keep up with it. He doesn't care about music magazines. I mean, the thing you have to remember is Lou Reed never bought a record in his life based on a record review or based on a reading an interview with somebody in a music magazine. You, you know, it's like all the formative records he bought was from listening to the radio or, you know, whatever it was. It wasn't right. based on the rock press. He, he predates any of that. Um, so, of course, he was just like, yeah, whatever, the magazine, like, you know, cares. And and Scully was like, no, you really have to read this. Like, this is really good. Like, like, and he took it and he had it with him. He took it out of his bag. He handed it to him and he was just like, he's like, you have to read this like right now. I'm not talking to you anymore until you read this article. Whoa. <laughs> and Lou starts reading and he's like, oh my God, this is great. What is this? What is this magazine? This magazine is great. I'm getting a subscription right now. You know, of course he's telling his, his assistant probably like subscribe to this magazine right now, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, yeah. Thanks I, to my friend, you know, kind of really like sitting him down and literally forcing him to read the article that Lou was even conscious of it. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> out there. That's incredible because because <laughs> obviously, yeah, he's very complimentary in it, which is 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 a cool thing, you know, to, to experience. Uh, I don't care how jaded somebody would be as a music writer. You know, if you if you win Lou over, that's cool. But then to have it go that much farther and have him, you know, forget and then once again be impressed. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And then later, you know, I did an invisible jukebox with him for The Wire. And uh, and he, he totally remembered me. And he had also seen Text of Light right. in the interim because of like, you know, we had Urish in common and then Text of Light did something at the kitchen. Of course, you know, I'm sure Lori had like a subscription to the kitchen I, I think they would go pretty much to anything at the kitchen but especially that they would make an extra effort to go to and um and he's sort of at the end of the invisible jukebox which he also was dreading but then wound up really enjoying because i played him stuff that i knew he was like yeah uh it was also sort of like flattering like you know i played him again going back to this miles davis 70s stuff i played him the track he loved him madly from get up with it you know which is like this very solemn kind of funereal track that greg had written about like brilliantly you know in that downbeat piece but i knew that quine was a huge fan of that track and quine had turned brian eno onto it and that in turn was a little bit of an influence on the ambient stuff because that's that's one of the things about this track is it's kind of proto ambient and so then i was wondering if maybe quine had played for lou as well and i was reasonably uh confident that he had but i didn't really know i figured i'll play it for him and see yeah what he thinks but also you know he had done this uh, metal machine trio with urish and this other guy named sarth i'm forgetting sarth's last name but um and it totally reminded me of this track and i was like if nothing else you know you know i'll just say like you know this reminds you of anything yeah and i played it for lou and he was just like wow listen to that guitar sound what is it and I was like, it's Miles Davis. He's like, this is Miles Davis. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, the reason I'm playing it is because it really sounds to me like Metal Machine Trio. And Lou said, it is so identical to it that it's frightening. Oh, and you're whoa. telling me this is Miles Davis? 
that's unbelievable. And of course, you know, again, he's selling his system like buy this on on iTunes right now. You know, it's like whoa. So so you know, that was again like really fantastic. And then at the end, he played me the uh he was doing a vinyl reissue of metal machine music. And what he did was, and he played it for me, he was like, he was like, he's like, what do you think? And I was like, well, it's metal machine music. And he's like, well, but I put the quad mix in the middle. It's like the stereo mix is like left and right. Whoa. And then pan dead center is the quad mix. And the quad mix was really the metal machine machine music backwards. Whoa. <laughs> so like yeah, in, yeah. In the quad mix, it was like the, the two speakers in front of you were the regular one. And then the stu- two speakers behind you were the same thing, but played backwards. And so he just sort of moved it to the center. And frankly, I, <laughs> I could not. You know, <laughs> yeah, I sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I love how, I love how, um, uh, how he stayed so into like musical technology, you know, it's like, like, you'll see like he's kind of playing these like weird guitars you know all through the the solo stuff where i say weird guitars but i just mean like you know cool high-end strange things and he was always interested in new effects and digital sounds and all this other stuff so that's yeah that's fascinating yeah i mean you know he would try (laughs) in a lot of interviews he would try to shift the conversation to that and even though i think I think it's something he he was interested in, but it was also a way to sort of like, you know, kind of deflect from. Yeah, of course. You know, interviewers asking him like dumb questions for the millionth time about, did you really do heroin? You know, yeah. all this kind of stuff that he didn't want to bother with. Right. This, the the suicide interview is also very great in this. Uh, I recently with. Uh, recently I, I I went back and I listened to American Supreme and it had been a really long time since I'd heard it. And I think maybe I kind of heard it early on in my suicide discovery. And I was like, I don't really dig this, you know, or whatever. This isn't working for me. It sounds very fascinating to me now and sounds really interesting and it's pretty engaging. Uh, that record was one that post nine 11, you, you felt like it kind of captured some of the spirit. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of tracks on there that, that kind of reference it, uh, somewhat indirectly, but kind of directly enough that, you know, that's kind of where they're coming from. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, suicide is while we're on the subject of technology, suicide is a band where, you know, with every record, they kind of improve, uh, the technology and it can be off putting, (laughs) frankly, because, you know, on the first suicide record, they're, they're, (laughs) they're basically pushing the technology as far as it can go. And that's part of what makes it cool. You know, it's like, they're trying to, you know, like overdrive a Farfisa organ. And it's like, you get this great sound that you can never get with a, For sure. a synthesizer. And also even the drum machine, you know, like they're, they're sort of like, they're, they're actually like overdriving the drum machine in the board when you could still do that with, with boards and like, and even like the echo on Alan's voice, again they're they're overloading it in the board and it's something that you know when you've got uh when technology improves and that's so that you can't do that so it's like a much cleaner sound you're losing some of the appeal at least for me and probably for a lot of other people but it's true for when sure. you go back and when you listen to this stuff and you kind of strip away and you can kind of like see past some of the production values which also frankly a lot of times are like uh 
kind of uh, arrived at with an eye towards maybe breaking them on the radio finally and it's which of course is like a losing battle um yeah uh you when you when you can if we can go back and listen to stuff like that uh with that in mind then then a lot of times the material on relief is is still really good and in fact i found out with lou also like there were certain things in the 80s you know i tended to write off things he was doing and when i go back and listen to it i'm like this is actually a great song you just have to kind of tune out uh you know the 80s production values where they're you know again they're just trying to make him um uh, uh, commercial you know, commercially relevant on the radio but it's uh, it's sort of you know again like a, a lost cause yeah yeah i mean that's 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 right i i I really enjoy you cover suicide as well on three chords and a sword the uh, which is up on your bandcamp which is incredible I I love that Van Halen cover especially who knew that a sort of <laughs> guitar sole uh, Tacoma school style well maybe not Tacoma school I don't know how if you'd class it's very much it's supposed to be yeah it's yeah. very much supposed to be in that it's, tradition it's it's but I mean it's gorgeous and I mean it reveals the the undeniable fact i think that jump is a great song uh and but it doesn't it doesn't reveal that because it's not evident already it's just hearing it re recontextualized that way is is so great and you know in a way that makes me think about the the contextualization and recontextualization is obviously what you do as a writer as well so it does feel like once again those worlds don't seem that divided for you, uh, you know, and I, and I think that that's partially what makes things great. You've long employed sort of pop references, you know, Donna Summer or things like that, where you're, you're taking these pop, I guess pop is the word that just keeps coming to my mind, you know, and you're playing with it and you're, 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 you're juxtaposing it against these other things. So, you know, in a way, that feels like you're commenting on the source material as well in its own weird way. Does it sort of feel that way to you? Yeah, when you're covering a song, you're really in dialogue with the song. I mean, you're saying like, you know, it's like, you know, it's otherwise it's karaoke, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you no, know, it's like if you're just if you're just, and, and that can be okay, but it's you know, it's like if you're really covering it with with the idea of reinterpreting it or or in the case of jump, like translating it to a different instrument, um, you're sort of in dialogue with the song is sort of like, here's what they have to say about what this song is. And here's what I have to say about what else it could be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and it's also the same as if I was doing a, I mean, I wouldn't profile Van Halen in, <laughs> in that way, but I mean, you could, but it is sort of like, but with the Donna summer thing, it is in a way kind of like revisionist, history where I was like, take, I broke down this one for people who don't know the piece. I broke down this one. Um, uh, I think it's like four bars of, uh, dim all the lights by Donna summer. And I just looped each bar for whatever it is, like five minutes. Yeah. Each of what is on the record is, you know, like 10 seconds is all of a sudden 20 minutes. <laughs> right. And, and it, Again, it's like with this um, consciousness of minimalist composition in mind, like, you know, what happens when you kind of loop the stuff over and over where it becomes hypnotic. And there's a certain amount of disco, which is meant to be, you know, it's a funny thing. It's like hypnotic, even though it's dance music at the same time. Yeah. So the whole point is to like to keep people out on the dance floor, just kind of like 
boogieing down or not really like listening to it. It's all about the beat, just kind of like boom, 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 and your your body is supposed to react to that. Um, but I'm saying like, what happens if you're not dancing to it? You're just like sitting there and like kind of letting it trancing out to this stuff. You know, like if you were like if you had been sitting, uh, you know, at uh, in the Paradise Garage for an all night Larry Levan you know, disco mix instead of yeah. sitting at, at a Terry Riley all night, you know, flight organ concert, you know, it's like, it's trying to approximate the same thing. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write an article about Donna Summer positing her as, as a minimalist composer, Yeah, but I would take the material and reconstruct it in a way to, to, to show the sort of like, um, you know, common you know, common tone yeah yeah the through line the through line that connects like so much of this yeah. stuff and it's I, you know the looking back on on your work it's it's clear that like you're able to isolate and and sort of zone in on these these shared similarities these these shared like elements that absolutely, you know, uh, that gets obscured sometimes when you're just listening to the regular song or whatever. So, it's 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 really interesting the way you're able to select all that. And and I guess I wonder as to sort of wind the talk down as we people are thinking a lot about genre right now or the lack thereof or whether or not genre is necessarily something that we need to hang on to as we move forward. Um, I think that streaming music for all of its issues, and there are very substantial issues with things like Spotify um, and others, there there is a sense that people are becoming maybe just less conditioned to necessarily decide that this something this belongs in this box and this belongs in this box do you feel like that's something that we're going as as time goes on what's your sense of of the the role that genre will or won't play in the way we think about music yeah well i think i think at least since um you know the 60s there's been all this kind of cross-pollination going on um so, you know, a lot of the genre thing is basically marketing. It's like, you know, subcategories. Sure. And then it's also kind of identification, you know, with, you know, certain things. Like there's, you know, someone who's like a hardcore industrial music fan, you know, it's, can you call them a rock fan? I mean, are, do they also like Chuck Berry or something? I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but but probably not. Or black metal. I mean, it's amazing to me that black metal is is you know it's fundamentally rock music that has like no relationship to fun no yeah <laughs> all about burning down churches and stuff <laughs> like that i mean it's, it's i mean in that way i think it's sort of cool that it's so ra- it's like this radical sect that kind of breaks away from uh the church of rock and roll which is about teenagers you know in their daddy's car or whatever it is whatever <laughs> right right whatever it was originally supposed to be you know it gets so far away from that and, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, the thing that's sort of amazing to me is like how malleable rock music has become as like this kind of big tent where it's like, you know, you can kind of hybrid it with almost anything and people have. And then, you know, and then in turn, you know, people start to, to, to take those hybrids and, and mix it with something else, you know, the whole, you know, the whole ECM records thing of, of it's like, it kind of takes off from jazz, but a lot of that stuff is like, it has elements of pop. It has elements of new age. It has elements of 
minimalism has elements of all this right stuff so um yeah i mean you know it's it's definitely that people i think if you if you're really a music fanatic then um genre you know doesn't necessarily have to play too much of a role and you can kind of one thing will kind of lead you to something else in a genre that maybe you thought like you weren't interested in and then all of a sudden it turns out you're know, like folk music you know you know for you know the first 10 years of, of buying records i would ignore the folk section then once i got interested in john Fahey and stuff like that then i would start flipping through and it was like you'd be surprised at what you'd find yeah <laughs> projectively in the late 80s um so that's one thing I and mean, the other thing that kind of really relates to the book is i'm very much a product of uh the music press of the late 70s which means rolling stone and cream magazine and the thing about that was you had interviews in there not just with musicians but also with sean luc Godard or philip k dick or um you know this i'm thinking of this guy jonathan cott who was one of the first editors of rolling stone he was there for quite a long time maybe he's even on the masthead somewhere now but you know he would he was the guy who would interview pete townsend but also Godard and john lennon and stockhausen yeah he has a whole book of interviews with Stockhausen. He did interview Glenn Gould for Rolling Stone. Um, so there was this whole kind of like, you know, it wasn't just about rock. And that was kind of an outgrowth of the counterculture where an FM radio, like freeform radio originally was sort of like what happens if you play all this stuff back to back, whether it's Indian music or John Fahey or Stockhausen and this freeform thing. It's like what happens if you mix all this stuff together? And that was part of being ahead, right? You know, it's like part of the whole deal. So a book like mine, where I'm talking to, you know, Carl Prokota and Tom Verlaine, he's kind of like, you know, kind of pioneering alternative guitar players at the same time as Rudy Wurlitzer and Kelly Reichert, who are, you know, involved in film and yeah. Michael Snow, who's like a kind of a multidisciplinary artist, as is Corey Archangel. You know, it's sort of like it all fits together. In my case, you know, the common thread here is is music. Like we're all, I'm basically talking to everyone as a music fan, and including Vito Acconci, you know, who's, you know, a, a you know one of the, the great performance artists. But he was a huge rock fan, a music fan, and most interviewers were never going to talk to him about that. Right. But I was talking about it, and I was saying actually, you know, a lot of your work seems that it's very related to that. And this was one of the few times he could say like yeah, you know, a lot of the things I was doing where it's like these kind of long monologues, it's like I'm thinking about Neil Young, Last Trip to Tulsa, the sort of the introspective solo singer-songwriter stuff, or Van Morrison around the same time, or I'm thinking about Jack Nicholson in The King of Marvin Gardens, like the first 10 minutes, it's just this close-up of Jack Nicholson as this late-night DJ, and he's talking about this long kind of monologue, you know? Yeah, so it's like, yeah. and again, again, it's the same era. It's this whole counterculture of the late sixties and seventies. Um, so that's sort of a, a lot of where this is all coming from. I'm, I'm still the generation of doing that. And, the, you know, and as you're talking about now, you know, no algorithm is going to tell you, <laughs> tell a Neil Young fan to check out Vito Acconci. No, no way. Yeah. Not gonna have <laughs> we, 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 we we still need people to make those connections. We still need, yeah. you know, and that's and that's actually the the yeah, to close. I mean, I think about that juxtaposition and I think about how I went back and I I listened to the Evan Dando of Noise um and I don't know, listening to Lonesome Valley where you've got this like Holler record playing and you're playing <laughs> 
Right. These two incongruous elements combined add up to something that that's like spiritually transcendent at least you know when i listen to it so i think that like maybe that juxtaposition maybe what strikes us about that is the fact that these two things are individually so human and singular in their own way and then together they they make some sort of i don't know merged thing that's just like kind of I don't know. I guess. I guess in in its own way, it's like yeah, that's the maybe the dream of the counterculture that a Ravi Shankar record can crash into yeah. a tele. You're asking, you know, Tom Verlaine about Middle Eastern scales and all of these things, and it's it's that yeah. I don't know. That juxtaposition is, I think, somehow like the spark that uh, makes music and art, uh, you know, so interesting. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is. Um you know, in the, in the interview with Phil Niblock, I sort of point out that, you know, he makes these films that he shows silently, but with his music sort of being the soundtrack of uh, people working, usually outdoors and working with their hands for the most part. So it's sort of like manual labor. And um, part of the idea is like, it's sort of like a lot of this sort of labor is very repetitive. It's just like the yeah. guys just say, like, whatever it is they're doing, whether they're like, kind of like making bread or they're um, working in a field somewhere or something or whatever it is, it's like sort of this like repetitive thing. And of course, his music is very repetitive. He's basically um, constructed out of someone playing like one note like over and over again on a, their instrument, and then he kind of edits together later. Um, but I pointed out to him that like most of the people that he's filming, you know, are never going to see the film. They're never going to have any awareness of of how it's been used. And the, the 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 track you're talking about, the Lonesome Valley, is a little bit like that. You know, it's the guy who like was competing in this hollering contest in wherever it was, South Carolina or something like that, uh, and then was recorded, um, is never going to know that I then took that and then reharmonized it by playing guitar on top of it. Um, and so there's this sort of, um, there's a sort of connection there, as you're talking about, like, kind of like in the greater, uh, you know, sort of, uh, scheme of things where it's not about making contact with the people like I do in this book, but it's, it's just about making contact with human activity at large and then giving your sort of, uh, take on like, like saying like, okay, what if I, and Phil too, it's like, what if I record these people doing this? No one is going to bother to film people doing this sort of work to make any kind of documentary or for the most part or any kind of let alone like narrative for commercial cinema but if i document this and then put this music uh to it then you're sort of it sort of becomes this again this like kind of hypnotic environment and also kind of raises awareness about what the aesthetics that i'm trying to do in my music are where that comes from in in the larger world you know when i did a new york minute part of the reason i did that was I would listen to the weather forecast every day. <laughs> yeah, frankly. yeah, yeah. Sometimes I listen to it multiple times a day if it, it seems like it's unpredictable weather. And so that was sort of uh, an example of repetition in my own daily life. And so does that have something to do with um, what, why I like all this repetitive music, like minimalism? You know, maybe, uh, you know. I mean, there's a certain, you know, there's there's some psychology <laughs> at work there. I won't get... Too, too much further into psychoanalysis <laughs> as to why I like that stuff, although I could. Yeah. But um, but 
that's sort of the, the other thing here is like, you know, I mean, it's kind of the, the sort of dream about the book is that somebody buys it for the Lou Reed interview and then discovers who Michael Snow is as a result or discovers who Adris Hoyos is as a result. Um, or, or someone buys it for the Matthew Barney interview and discovers uh, who Greg Tate is or right. uh, and Jacobs or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, the idea that, you know, once it's there, you know, because again, to go back to these music magazines I read, they would put, you know, um, whoever on the, you know, whoever was a big star on the cover and then inside would be this art, you know, there was an, there was an article, there was an issue of cream where Angus Young was on the cover and inside was a whole history of the Velvet Underground. And so that's one of the ways I found out about the Velvet Underground. It's like, you know, I mean, I think I was buying it every month anyway, no matter who was on the cover. But the point is, like, yeah, they put somebody on the cover and then, you know, there's there's a kid out there that's like that doesn't just read the article about Angus Young. You read some of the article, other articles in there and that kind of starts to open all these other doors. There's always the possibility that that can happen. That's that's a pretty exciting thing. I think that's that's a great Great way to, to wrap things up. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time and thanks for this great book and, and all the great, for having me. all the great records. And uh, I appreciate you doing so. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll speak again. Hope so. Alan Licht here on Transmissions. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Andrew Horton edits our audio. Visual assets by Sarah Goldstein and Jonathan Mark Walls. And our executive producer and top of the show announcer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard main man. He founded the site in 2005 and hosts the Aquarium Drunkard show on Sirius XM every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. California time. I appreciate you tuning in. I know there's no shortage of things that you could be listening to, so I'm very honored to have your attention. Love to hear what you're thinking of the show as well. You can find my contact info at AD. You can find me on most of the social media platforms. And Aquarium Drunkard is on Patreon if you want to make things official. Next week on the show, my conversation with writer, producer, and genuinely hilarious conversationalist, Nico Case. Those who support us on Patreon have already uh, heard this one. So if you like the idea of getting access to that stuff earlier, that's one way you can do so. All right, we'll be back soon. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Mm-hmm.